This is They Create Worlds, episode 67, The Birth of the Japanese Game Consoles. A quick reminder, Sunday, June 3rd, 2018, at 12.30 p.m. Central Time, we will be recording our multi-part episode on Sega vs. Nintendo. If you want to check it out, feel free to drop by our live stream. Remember, that's 12.30 Central, GMT minus 5. See you then. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Yeah, hello. We're going to head off to Japan in the dark ages, in the before time, when games were great. Well, games were probably already great, but now they have to invade your home. This is where we have consoles. That's right. The console industry is, of course, something that originated in the United States with the Magnavox Odyssey in 1972. But Japan, very early on, started developing its own console industry, too. And while in the very beginning it was rather insignificant, especially compared to the grand scheme of life with what was going on in the United States and even in Europe... Obviously, Japanese consoles kind of became a big deal eventually. Especially that Famicom thing. Yeah, it's a fad. It was such a fad that they were still manufacturing parts for it until somewhat recently. And because the Famicom was so big and so much bigger than anything in Japan that came before it, there's been very, very little coverage of what was happening in Japan before that time. The the narrative kind of is... Nintendo did a few dedicated consoles, and then Nintendo did the Famicom, and there were some other people trying to do things, but the Famicom just crushed everything, and hooray Nintendo. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. But I'm okay with that. That Nintendo was awesome. It had a disc, it had cartridges, it even had a microphone in the controller. Pulse voices dislike loud noises. Yeah, my Nintendo doesn't have a microphone. The Pulse voices don't die if I yell at them. No. Arrows, Jeff. Always arrows. Oh, dear. So we thought we would take a look, especially since we're about to do, as announced last time, our massive three-part look at the more commonly told part of the story, the Sega and Nintendo rivalry in the 1980s and 1990s. We thought that before we get to that, it would be instructive to take a look as much as we can at that very early Japanese console industry. There aren't a lot of sources on this. And My instinct is that there probably aren't even a lot of sources on it in Japanese, because even there, the Famicom is just such a big deal, it's hard to get beyond that to discuss other aspects of the market. But there are enough sources out there that we can at least construct some kind of narrative about what was going on in Japan in that period, and put the Famicom in the context of this larger, very embryotic Japanese console industry that was developing in the late 70s and early 1980s. So taking it from the beginning, we've already talked a lot about Japanese arcade systems, how the whole arcades came to be, how you had the Japanese game centers and how those came to be. So at what point in that narrative did the first consoles, the ones that you could take home, really come into existence? So it happened a few years after it happened in the United States. The trend, which we've talked about before, in Japan during this time period, this isn't the case anymore, but during this time period, was that Japan would always be lagging maybe three years or so behind what was going on in the United States. So in 1972, Magnavox releases this Odyssey console that we've talked about uh, before. This same console comes to Japan three years later, 1975. Magnavox was interested in getting involved in an international market from the very beginning. Obviously, they were servicing their domestic market first, the United States. But as early as 1973, they were test marketing the system in Europe, and it received a broader release in Europe kind of in 1974. Japan, being a very 
undeveloped market at this point from the perspective of an American company had to wait a little longer for something to come along. But in 1975, there was a company called Jolieb. I don't know what kind of company they were, whether they were a trading company or a distributor or a wholesaler or whatever, that started importing Magnavox Odyssey systems. There's a persistent story that won't go away, that just kind of stays out there, that Nintendo, our good friends Nintendo, licensed the Odyssey technology and released it in Japan in 1974 or 1975 or something like that. That story appears to not be true. It goes back to Game Over. We've talked about the book Game Over before, David Sheff's look at Nintendo at the height of its powers in the late 1980s slash early 1990s. And he had unparalleled access not just to the Nintendo executives at Nintendo of America, but also to many executives at Nintendo in Japan, including uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of the company. He tells the story relating to Nintendo of Yamauchi meeting with a friend over dinner and his friend telling him about these video game things that are becoming so big. Yamauchi wanting to get involved in that and therefore licensing the Odyssey and releasing the Odyssey in Japan. That's the story from Chef, who did have access to Nintendo executives, and that's the story that's been carried on ever since in many sources. There's really no other evidence that that's true. Chef does get some other facts wrong. His book is not perfect. We shouldn't just take him as the gospel truth. First of all, it's likely that Nintendo knew about the video game industry earlier than 1974-1975 because it appears that the light gun on the Magnavox Odyssey was actually manufactured by Nintendo. It was a Nintendo design. I'm not sure if they actually manufactured them in Japan or if they just gave the design to Magnavox and Magnavox manufactured in the United States. I think that's probably what happened. But it was a Nintendo design. Nintendo when they were starting their first hesitant steps into electronic games, not video games, but games incorporating electronics, it created a wildly successful product called the Bean Gun, where they actually had a light gun and they had targets that had solar cells mounted on them. You would shoot those targets and things would happen. There was a lion that if you shot it on the solar cell, the lion would roar. There was Uh, I think a group of barrels that would burst apart. You know, there would be action that would happen when you would use your light gun and hit that solar cell on the target. So Nintendo had this experience with light gun technology. They were actually doing it in partnership with Sharp, the Japanese electronics company. A salesman from Sharp, Masuki Uemura, had come to Nintendo to see if they would be interested in using the solar cell technology. We talked about this, I believe, when we talked about Gunpei Yokoi, because Yokoi was the driver of this. And Yokoi was very enthusiastic about the idea of using these solar cells in some kind of game. Uemura, of course, then actually ended up joining Nintendo himself and helping to build this product, this beam gun product. So Nintendo had an expertise in light guns during a period of time when that was not a common toy. There had been light guns in arcade games. We talked about that, but it wasn't very common in a toy. It appears what happened is that Magnavox, for their light gun, actually licensed the Nintendo product. Uh, I believe Uemura himself has said that in some interviews to, I believe, Florent Gorge, who is a Frenchman, very proficient on the Nintendo history. And if you look at the Magnavox Odyssey gun and the Nintendo Beam Gun, or at least one version of the Beam Gun released with some of their products, they seem to have the same mold. I mean, they seem to be nearly identical. I'm pretty confident in saying that this is accurate, that Nintendo actually did provide the design, at least, even if they weren't manufacturing, for the Odyssey. So Yamauchi would have been aware of the Odyssey already from very early on. Could have still been a friend that told him about it, for all I know. But he knew about it very early on. And the other thing is, there is no example of a Nintendo-branded Odyssey at all. Whether they would have branded it by putting their name on the console or if they would have just stuck a sticker on the box, who knows, because Japanese companies have done it both ways. But 
with all of the interest in Nintendo and Nintendo products, there's even a whole blog called Before Mario that has pictures and information on virtually everything Nintendo has ever released. Plus, there's Florent Gorge's books that pretty much has pictures and information on everything Nintendo ever released. Neither of those have any kind of Nintendo Magnavox Odyssey on them. Not at all. And you'd think if this truly existed, it would show up in one of these sources. Mm -hmm. Even if it was ridiculously rare, I would still think that there'd be a surviving example. There's examples of a lot of their experiments that have just been a sort of test run thing for a lot of different companies. And you see pictures of those. Exactly. We have pictures of the prototype Nintendo CD, the Super Nintendo CD device. They actually found a working model of it, but they before they found a working model of it, they had pictures and documentation of it existing. Sure. That's one part of it. I mean, you, you can never wholly disprove a negative, but that's one part of it. The other part of it is that we do know that this Jolieb company did release the Odyssey in Japan and did do that in 1975. There's reference to it in Game Machine, which is the Japanese coin-op publication, similar to Replay or Playmeter in the United States. There's reference to it there. There's also uh, Ethan Johnson discovered a website that had information on various Japanese consoles with sources. And that website also says that Joe Lieb was selling it in 1975, and it references a, an article in the Japanese newspaper to come to that conclusion. Now, that article's not online, so we can't independently verify that this website is stating correct information. But still, that's two different sources that are citing to Jolie being the company that is releasing the Odyssey in Japan. So this idea that Nintendo ever released that console is highly, highly unlikely. So we just want to kind of use that as a starting point. But it did come out in Japan in 1975. I doubt it made any kind of impact. I've never seen a Japanese Odyssey of any kind surface. Since it's not a Nintendo thing, I mean, it's less likely that someone would be interested, but maybe some obscure Japanese website, obviously, there's the language barrier, has something, but I've never seen one. I don't think it could have made much of an impact in the market, but it was there. More important than the actual Odyssey, though, was the work of the toy company Epoch. Epoch was founded by an individual, uh, Takitora Maeda. In 1958, as a toy and game company, they became very successful fairly quickly with a series of baseball games, kind of similar to pitch and bat arcade games in the arcade, but not, you know, using a, a metal ball of some kind that you roll down the field and then the other player has the control for the bat and is trying to time it to get a good hit kind of thing. They were very successful with that very early, and so were a decently successful company in the, uh, in the 1960s in Japan. They didn't really export, I don't think, to the United States. This was a period of time when the Japanese toy industry was not considered to be on the same level as the American industry. In other words, American companies weren't really interested in importing Japanese toys. They had all they wanted from Mattel and Hasbro and Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley and Tonka and whoever else. But they were doing just fine in Japan, and they were experimenting with some electronic or electrical technology. They were pretty early with a remote-controlled helicopter, for instance, in 1965. So they were a company that was forward-thinking in terms of how to enhance play devices using electricity or electronics or, or whatever else. So they took notice of the Odyssey in the United States, and they actually licensed the technology. You may recall from our Magnavox litigation episode, Sanders Associates, and by extension Magnavox, didn't really care if other people were releasing similar products, particularly Sanders, so long as they were paying a licensing fee or a royalty to Sanders slash Magnavox for the privilege because of those patents on there. So Epoch did come to Magnavox and actually officially licensed the Odyssey technology. But then they created their own system around it. They didn't just release the Odyssey in Japan like this company Joe Lieb did. So they released a console by the name of TV Tennis. This is the very first Japanese console ever created by this toy company Epoch. 
it's just Pong. It's just playing the ping pong style game that is on the Odyssey. The interesting thing about it, though, is that it is wireless. It is actually, it does not connect to your television set. It actually beams its signal to your television, presumably to the antenna or something. So it's actually a wireless console. That's actually pretty surprising and kind of a unique and challenging feat to do, especially back then. Absolutely. We have a lot of problems with wireless now. Just imagine trying to get a decent enough signal to a television by doing a little mini transmitter. The only way I could see to do this back then is a little transmitter similar to having an AM, FM radio transceiver that you would have to send your iPod or some sort of audio device to your car. You do the same sort of thing to a television where you have to have a good enough antenna to pick up that signal. And the console has to put out enough of a strong signal that it can reach the television but not interfere with anything else. That's a really delicate and difficult challenge. Exactly. And I have no idea why they decided to do it that way except for one piece of speculation. There is an interview that was translated by Schmupplations with an employee of Epoch during a later period. He was not there when they did TV Tennis, but he was there when they were releasing some of their follow-up products that we'll talk about later. The interesting thing that he said is when they were doing, when they were releasing their consoles and their later ones were actually, you would actually wire in. It was not remote like this. It was met with utter confusion by the Japanese public, which is not surprising. I mean, before video games, you really didn't attach anything to your television as an add-on. You might get a fancier set of antenna or something to improve your reception, but you did not attach something to your television with the intent of adding to the capability of your television. VCRs were just getting started. Called them VTRs back then, videotape recorders, were just getting started in the mid-1970s. There were no VCRs. And then by this time, 75, very few VCRs, let alone cable set-top boxes or any of the other equipment that you would later plug into a television. And there weren't video games other than the Odyssey, of course. This was something new, and this was something difficult for people to understand. Epoch, when they released some of their later systems, would actually not just run a troubleshooting hotline. If somebody called and said, I'm having trouble installing my system, they would actually go out to that person's home and wire that system to the television. That's amazing. That's a phenomenal cost. And they wouldn't only do that. There was a lot less standardization amongst televisions in terms of how the screen would be displayed, not just different sizes, but some screens had curves around the outside. It wasn't just the straight square or rectangle or whatever. Some of the signal would actually be cut off. Epoch technicians would actually, if part of your game was being cut off, making it not playable, they would actually go into your television and change the offsets, change the horizontal and vertical sync. On your television. So and that it would all be free of charge. I assume so. He doesn't mention anything about charging money. I mean, it's possible they did. I honestly don't know. But whether they charge money or not, I mean, it's like the Geek Squad before the Geek Squad, except that these were actually highly skilled technicians providing uh, valuable service instead of, well, we won't get into that. But let's just say <laughs> it's kind of like the Geek Squad, but a little less. Uh, the Geek Squad before Best Buy. Right. So it could be, and this is just speculation, but it could be that they made this first console wireless because they figured that would be a heck of a lot easier than trying to explain to the general public how you connect this contraption to your television. Because that was a difficulty. It's probably a difficulty in the United States as well. It's interesting to think back to the tech support side of things. I mean, this is a tangent, but Jerry Lawson, who led the design of the Fairchild Channel F, the first cartridge-based video game system released in 1976, he's passed on now, but he used to talk about the day after Christmas, 1976, when all the little Johnnies and Susies in the world got their Channel F consoles for Christmas. Nobody could figure out exactly what to do with them. They were inundated with tech support calls because this was new. At this point, we're not talking about the hooking up to the television so much. We're talking about how do we use these cartridge things? How do we turn the system on? 
We live in a world where video games are ubiquitous, and even if the technology changes a little bit over time, the basic concept of how you hook up a video game system hasn't changed all that much. In fact, it keeps getting easier with HDMI cables and DisplayPort cables and all of that, replacing RF modulators and RCA composite video, etc., etc. But back then, this was very foreign technology. Epoch, I think, probably decided to confront this by doing the wireless thing, but clearly the wireless thing wasn't the answer because, like you said, that's a very difficult thing to really get working correctly. So they didn't do that with any of their other consoles, but TV Tennis, they did. So TV Tennis, released in 1975, it sells, according to Epoch's own records, it sells about 10,000 units. So that's not great. (laughs) It's not just new technology, but we have to remember that there was not a Pong boom in Japan. We talked about this in the context of the Japanese arcade. Pong was released in Japan. Both Taito and Sega, as I believe we discussed, imported Pong boards and released their own named version of the game, put it in their own cabinets and called it by their own names, Elapong and Pongtron. But it did not take off in the Japanese market the same way it did in the U.S. The metal games, which we talked about at length, were the games that were hot. Or if you were of a more gambling bent, the pachinko games were hot. Electromechanical driving and shooting games were still more prevalent than video games. There was no Pong boom in Japan. You didn't have Pong arcade machines to really draw people in and go, oh, I like this game, I want to take this game and have it at home to play and become really good at it. Exactly. By the time you had Magnavox's competition, like Atari with Home Pong coming along in 1975, that was something, even though it had largely faded by that point in the arcade, that was something that the entire country in the United States and in Europe as well, where there was also a Pong boom, that was something that the general public was at least aware of and understood And so there was kind of this excitement to be able to bring that into the home. You just didn't have that in Japan. So it's really no surprise that that technology really sank in the marketplace. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Magnavox Odyssey sold even less than those 10,000 units that Epoch managed to sell of their system. The market wasn't ready. The market really wasn't ready until 1977. And that's because the first Japanese boom in the arcade, as we talked about, was Breakout. Breakout, released in 1976. Taito brings it into tabletop form, gets it into snack bars, coffee shops, tea houses, etc. in 1977. Huge. Absolutely huge. So this is the first time that the Japanese general public is really taking note of this video game industry in the arcade. And that's when you start really seeing movement in the home. Epoch got out after television tennis. Again, it comes from the same interview with this Epoch employee. It's not just that this was their system on the market and then two years later they released an update system on the market. No, there was a period of time when they had decided to stop where they were not making video games anymore because it wasn't viable. But then breakout hits. You get this big boom in the arcades, the blockbusting games, the Borokuzushi. Now, suddenly there is an interest in doing this again. So who are the companies? that in 1977 are getting involved in this. There are a couple of dozen of them. We're not going to go into all of them, but there are a couple of major themes here. You have a couple of Japanese electronics companies that are consumer-oriented electronics companies. That is, they're doing their own chip manufacturing, and they're also releasing consumer electronics to the public. So a couple of these companies get involved, most notably Hitachi and Toshiba, two very big names in Japanese electronics. They're releasing games. The big push is coming from the Japanese toy companies because home video games are very much seen as a toy. I mean, I think in the United States, they're largely seen as toys, too. After all, we talked about all the toy companies that got in. We talked about Coleco getting involved. They're a toy company. But in the United States, the toy companies were kind of hesitant to get involved at first because they were afraid of the cost of the systems. 
And I think they were also hesitant to get involved because they didn't have the expertise to do this and they didn't necessarily know where to turn to get that. Obviously, General Instruments comes out with their Pong on a chip and then a lot of companies get involved. But it's it's really the toy companies stay out of it, whereas in Japan, the toy companies actually get into it in 1977 and they do it in partnership with Japanese chip companies. I can't say this for certain, but I think the fact that Japan is a more collaborative culture probably paved the way for this working. You had chip companies that wanted to get involved, and the chip companies got into bed with the toy companies in order to make this all kind of happen. Epoch is continuing. Now, Epoch gets back in, and they get in with NEC, Nippon Electronic Corporation, NEC, the big Japanese electronics company, which we've talked about in a variety of ways in past episodes. They get back in this business. They release a system in 1977 called the System 10, which plays a bunch of ball and paddle varieties. We're still on this ball and paddle thing, even though it's Breakout that's hitting in the arcades. The first games that are coming out are not Breakout. You're going with the more proven technology, the technology that's already been done in the United States, the technology that's easy to copy, which is the circuitry to do ball and paddle games, because that's been something that's been going on in the U.S. with LSIs, with integrated large-scale integrated circuits, going back to 1975. So that's the kind of stuff that you're seeing. Even though there was never a Pong boom, it's now the Pong games that you are seeing coming into the home. So Epoch's still there. Epoch was the first one in, and Epoch has a consistent presence in this market throughout the 1970s and 1980s. They never really released their consoles outside of Japan. A few of them got to France, I think. But in general, they did not release them outside Japan. That stuff is really not known today to the casual enthusiast. A lot of collectors of these consoles and whatnot are certainly aware of Epoch. I mean, they're not that obscure. That's not a product that was really released in the West. So it's easy to forget that these guys were first in Japan and they were a long time in Japan. Tomy, another big Japanese toy company gets involved. They release a series of systems in 1977, ball and paddle stuff. And then Bondi, which is the premier Japanese toy company, the largest Japanese toy company, also gets involved in this market. They release a series of consoles called the TV Jack series. I guess because they jack into your television. I mean, Japanese use English in weird ways sometimes, as we've discussed before. Much to the entertainment of Westerners. (laughs) Yes, sometimes. Another company that got involved in this, another chip maker that got involved with this was Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi is a Zaibatsu. It's a big Japanese company that's involved in many areas. They make cars, they make electronics, they make all sorts of things. So they put a chip together and they partnered with a company called Systec to put out a game. The first game that they put out was an electronic game that was not really video game related. It was a series of board games that did and card games that did like Othello and Blackjack and stuff like that. So they put that game out in early 1977. And then Systec went bankrupt. It was involved in the calculator business, which, as we discussed, was really not doing so well after about 1972 or 73. They were involved in electronic cash registers, which did not go so well for a lot of companies once some of the bigger companies like IBM and National Cash Register started monopolizing that field. So Systec goes into bankruptcy. They go into financial reorganization. Mitsubishi had been working on another chip to do ball and paddle style games, you know, to do this Pong thing that everyone else is doing. But they no longer had a partner in Systec to bring that to market. Mitsubishi goes out and looks for another partner, and they end up connecting with Nintendo. And this is where Nintendo enters the fray. Exactly. Nintendo was obviously already exploring these kind of avenues by this point. We've talked about this in the context of Gunpei Yokoi. They'd already done the light gun games. They'd already done various other electronic games. They'd already done some games in the arcade at this point. Not so much video games as of yet, but some film strip light gun games using that same beam gun technology that they had used. Also, some games using a technology called EVR, a particular type of film technology. 
So they were getting involved in some of these areas. They were encroaching on this video game area and they were doing electronic stuff. So it was logical for them, just like all the other toy companies in Japan at that time, like Bandai and Tomy and Epoch, because Nintendo is very much a toy company at this point, to also get involved in this field. But they get into bed with Mitsubishi because Mitsubishi loses their partner, which is Systech. From the very beginning, you get the qualities that will continue to propel Nintendo to the forefront of the market during the Famicom era as well. Yamauchi was very insistent that Nintendo come in with the highest quality product at the lowest possible price. He wants to undercut the competition and at the same time deliver more than the competition. So he told his designers that he wanted them, his engineers, well, designers, because Mitsubishi's doing the the actual engineering, that he wanted a console that broke through the 10,000 yen price barrier. This is when consoles from competing companies are ranging anywhere from 13,000 yen to 30 plus thousand yen. I mean, just about everybody is in double digits or double thousands of digits, I guess you'd say. For context, what is 10,000 yen in, say, U.S. dollars? So in 1977, one U.S. dollar was approximately, give or take, 290 yen. So 10,000 yen in 1977 would have been about $35, if I'm doing my math right. You have to remember at this time... A top-line American system, like the Coleco Telstar systems, was going for about $60 U.S., $60 to $70. Atari was going even higher than that. Atari was closer to $100 for their consoles. Japanese consoles were kind of up there in the probably $50 range for the most part. And now Yamauchi is saying that he wants something around $30. He wants to break through that 10,000 yen price barrier in a place where nobody's living, but he doesn't want to do that just by providing something cheap and valueless, flimsy. He wants to do that while outperforming everybody else. This is Yamauchi's mandate. That's a pretty tall order to fill. It is, and it actually is impossible. It's actually literally impossible to do that. But here is what Nintendo did to kind of sort of do that and satisfy what Yamuchi wanted. They created two versions of the system. They created the bare bones model that played fewer games, fewer variations, called the Color TV 6. And that's the one that retailed for about 9,800 yen. Then they created the real version of the system, the TV game 15, which retailed for 15,000 yen which is still a remarkable price point to hit for the capability of the system. Just about everything was monochrome during this time period. It was black and white. All the consoles were black and white. The Nintendo systems were in color. Color TV 6, Color TV 15. I take it the numbers have to do with how many colors? No, no, how many games. Oh, how many games? Game variations. They're minor variations on various ball and paddle things. It's all ball and paddle based stuff, but they're trying to make it impressive. We have all these games you can play. So you can get the six variation model or the 15 variation model. Exactly. So what they did is they advertised having the lowest priced system. They advertised getting underneath that 10,000 yen barrier with the color TV six, but they never really expected many people to buy that one. When people went out and bought, they actually bought the TV game 15 instead. That was the brilliance of it. They were able to advertise the cheap price, and they still delivered even at the high end a relatively cheap system. But they were able to advertise the cheap price, but then provide something that was actually more powerful and cost more money, and that people at that point were still happy to buy. So it's actually the TV Game 15 that sells more units. TV Game 15 sells about 700,000 units. TV Game 6 sells about 300,000 units. But without TV Game 6 and without the marketing they could do on that cheap price, 
it's doubtful that TV Game 15 would have done as much business as it did. So Yamuchi didn't quite get what he wanted, but he got close enough. And I mean, overall, between the two systems, you're getting a million units. One million units. That's right. The entire market that year in 1977 in Japan was about 1.2 million units. So they completely and utterly crushed it. They did because they had a powerful system and they had a cheap price. TV Game 15 wasn't as cheap as some other systems on the market, but TV Game 6 gave them that low end. And everything's in color at a time when it's mostly black and white. And they're offering tons of games. They're offering six games. They're offering 15 games. Even if they're minor variants, most other systems are advertising three or four games. There are a few that are advertising more than that, but that's generally kind of the sweet spot. Epochs got their System 10. They're offering more games, obviously, but it's usually three or four games. So more games, color instead of black and white, and still hitting a really, really good price point. So they dominate the market. I mean, if you do the math on that, that's like 80% of the market. Some of those numbers are probably slightly off. A Gorge gives Nintendo is having about 70% of the market. And that could have to do with rounding. It could have to do, I am getting the source for the total market from a different source from the Nintendo numbers. But still, let's call it something like 70 to 80% of the market. Nintendo just dominates. And it's still not a huge market, but 1.2 or so million units is pretty good for a country the size of Japan. I mean, at this time, the U.S. market, for context, has grown to about 6 million units, but it's also in a country that is far larger. And also, the U.S. market is in its third year, whereas the Japanese market is in its first year, doing 1.2 million. So that's pretty darn good numbers. That's more numbers than the U.S. market did in 1975, which was when the dedicated console market really took off there. So that's highly successful product. This is the first time that it's coming to the home, and it's Nintendo, even in this era, that's dominating. So where do you go from there? Ball and paddle games obviously have a very limited shelf life. They did in the United States. People got tired of that nonsense pretty quickly. And that's in a place where Pong had been extremely popular in the first place, unlike in Japan, where it really wasn't. So the market in Japan really tries to move past Pong as quickly as possible and get into other areas, which is a bit of a contrast to the U.S. And the U.S. companies were kind of content to keep milking Pong games, 75, 76, finally in 77, you start kind of seeing some different variants, but it's still the Pong games taking the lead in the market. There's no doubt that that continues to happen in Japan as well. I mean, you've still got Pong systems, but there's a real move away from that in 1978 already. They get away from that very, very quickly. The next step kind of in 1978, goes in a couple of different directions. Driving games get introduced that year. Driving games had always been one of the more popular things in Japanese arcades, both electromechanical and video games. Even in the early 70s or the mid-70s, when video games as a whole weren't as big in Japan as they were in the United States, games like Speed Race from Taito, driving game that we talked about, were pretty popular. So that's a logical next step to take in the marketplace. So Nintendo releases a racing game, TV game Racing 112. 112, again, I think is referring to the number of variations, but obviously we're talking about very minor variations. There aren't really 112 games stuck on this console. It's still a dedicated console. Uh, Tomy releases a new game in its line of TV Fun. TV Fun is just the name, the brand name that they use. Their new one includes a steering wheel, so it includes driving games. Epoch decides to go in a different direction. They see these other companies coming out with driving games or announcing that they're going to come out with driving games, and they have a choice. They can be a Me Too product or they can do their own thing. And they decide to do their own thing, and they decide to do a baseball game. They do TV baseball instead. This is directly linked to their long history with pitch and bat baseball games as toys. So they've got that. And they decide to bring that into the video game space. And again, I'm not just speculating on this. A lot of this comes from that interview with that one employee that Shmuplations translated. 
they release a baseball game. Again, just a dedicated console. So in 78, it's still very much a dedicated console market. They are moving beyond Pong fairly quickly. And the market does pretty well in 78. It increases a little bit. It doesn't increase by leaps and bounds, but the one source I have, which is estimates, so who knows how accurate, but says 1.2 million in 77, 1.5 million in 1978. It's a little bit bigger market. The market grows a little bit. Nintendo's TV racing game doesn't really do that well, but they release another version of their uh, previous ball and paddle as well that does better. So it's not as dominant a year for Nintendo, but the market is still kind of going on. By 1979, you're starting to see the end of this viability for these home games that are just single games. So you have kind of the end of that happening at the same time that you get the beginnings of some experiments in other directions. 1979 is the year that the blockbusting games finally come to the home, and I think that's because it took them this long to be able to do that technology effectively for a decent price because it's a little more complex of a thing than Pong because you have all those bricks that have to vanish. So you have to have some way of keeping track of the bricks. And when the bricks have disappeared, there's more complex things going on than just batting the, the ball back and forth. Especially if you do something special like power-ups or things falling down from the top. That's right. Epoch releases TV Block, which is actually a licensed version of Atari's Video Pinball. Video Pinball was one of the very last dedicated units that Atari released in the United States as that market was starting to fall apart. It was a very advanced unit for a dedicated unit. I think it didn't have a microprocessor in it, but I think it did have a microcontroller in it, and it had RAM in it because that made it easier to do the thing with the bricks disappearing. It was a very advanced system for a dedicated console, and Epoch licensed that. They got the boards from Atari, and then they built their own case around it and released that as TV Block. Nintendo also, continuing their partnerships uh, with Mitsubishi and whatnot, Nintendo also releases a game, TV Block Kazushi. Block Kazushi essentially just means blockbusting. It's, it's what they called breakout-style games. Breakout-style games were essentially a genre in Japan since there were so many clones. So Boro Kazushi or Block Kazushi just literally means blockbusting game. So they released one. They took a bigger design role in this one than they did in the others. They've been working with Mitsubishi and with this technology long enough now that they have greater confidence in their abilities. And so they do more of this design themselves. And the case design of Block Kazushi is actually done by a relatively new member of the planning department named Shigeru Miyamoto. Hmm. He's not designing the gameplay. That's not the kind of design he does at this point, but he's designing the case. That one does much better than the TV racing game does, but not as well as the ball and paddle games did in 1977. It does about 400,000 units. This market is starting to fall apart just a little bit. Epoch actually licenses the Atari VCS this year as well. They license that from Atari and release it. Later on, Atari founds its own Japanese subsidiary and tries releasing the VCS themselves, but at this point, they don't have a Japanese presence, so Epoch licenses and brings it over as the cassette TV game. I have to pause and say here, because we're going to hear this word cassette several times coming up, in this period of time, the Japanese referred to what we would call cartridges as cassettes. So when we're calling something cassette TV game, we don't mean that we're doing like the British did on the ZX Spectrums and actually using a tape drive and tapes to load on and run our games. We're talking about cartridges. The Japanese called them cassettes. Cassette TV game comes out. But it's really expensive. It's 57,000 yen. It's much more expensive than these dedicated things. And because of import duties and whatnot, it's much more expensive even, I think, than what Atari's offering it for in, in the States. This was a roughly $290 system. That is not what American consumers were paying for VCS. American consumers were paying under $200. They were paying like 189 Hugely expensive system. Not surprisingly, it therefore 
fails utterly in the marketplace. It's just, it's way too expensive. The Japanese are starting to like video games some, but they don't like them that much. One interesting story about the VCS and Epoch, and this is a story that very well may not be true, but it's interesting to report on, and this comes from that Shmuplations interview once again. According to that employee from that interview, Masayuki Hori, who was very involved in the design and the marketing of Epoch's video games during this time period. Epoch was the company that went to Atari and said, hey, there's this really hot game called Space Invaders, and we think that would make a lot of money for everybody. I think you guys should go license that so that we can all release it on the VCS and make lots of money. Now, that contradicts the story as told by Manny Gerard, the Warner executive, uh, you may recall, that oversaw Atari for Warner. He says that he's the one that came up with that kind of brainstorm because they had a room, uh, an arcade room at Atari with all the latest hit arcade games that the designers could play, you know, for inspiration and whatnot. And he kind of saw that and was kind of thinking, you know, really, we could have this on our system. Let's go license it. And so he marched over to Ray Kassar's office, the CEO, and said, we need to license this game. And Ray Kassar's like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Why didn't I think of that? And then they go and license it. Both stories could be correct. I mean, they don't necessarily contradict each other. Manny Gerard could have had the brainstorm. And at the same time, the Epoch people could have been requesting this license. I mean, it's a no-brainer, really, that Space Invaders is so popular in the arcade. Why not bring it to the home? So it could be both stories are true. It could be one or the other's not true. But it's just interesting that it's possible that Epoch had a small bit of impact on Atari in that way. Gotta love speculation. <laughs> Space Invaders and Superman, of all things, there was a Superman game on the VCS, were basically the only two VCS games that sold in Japan, according to this guy again, Hori. None of the other stuff did, and that didn't work out very well for them. By this time, the Japanese market is really starting to fall apart, and that mirrors the United States. 75, market got started. 76, Market expanded, blew up huge. 77, market began to collapse, talking about dedicated consoles. So it was about a three-year cycle in the United States, and it was about a three-year cycle in Japan. 77, 78, 79, then the market is basically done. Most of the companies that were releasing these systems, like Tomy and Bandai and whatnot, get out at this point. Nintendo gets out at this point. And there's a new focus on electronic handhelds, LCD and VFD, vacuum fluorescent display, especially. And that mirrors what happened in the United States again a couple of years later than it happened in the United States. Because in the U.S., the handheld games started eating into the profits of the video games, and that caused a collapse. The difference is Japan doesn't have the programmable consoles starting to take off at the same time. Because again, technologically, Japan is usually just a little bit behind. In the U.S., you have the Atari VCS starting to take off, sort of. It doesn't take off huge till a couple years later, but sort of at the same time that the dedicated consoles are collapsing. In Japan, you don't really have that. You have the Atari VCS in, but just, we just talked because of the price, it's a failure, and there really isn't a viable domestic model. Bandai does play around with a cartridge system, Supervision 8000, but my understanding is that really doesn't do much business either. It's just the focus is going into this handheld or tabletop electronic game market, which is a market we're not going to uh, discuss. It's kind of out of the scope of this episode, but just to know that that's happening. In this period, Epoch is the only one that sticks with it, really. All these other companies get out, for the most part. They might still be selling some of their old systems, but they're not making new systems. Epoch is dedicated to continuing this. Epoch is the one company that really understood, in this time period, the value of releasing hit games from the arcade, either the exact same game or a clone that they make, in the home. They're the one company that is actually going around to the amusement machine shows, the trade shows in the coin-op industry, and trying to figure out what the hit games are going to be. 
And whether they told Atari that they should license Space Invaders or not, it's a fact that in 1980, Epoch releases a Space Invaders dedicated console called TV Vader. In the United States, dedicated consoles are dead by this point. No one's doing them. Uh, And in Japan, not many people are doing them. They do, in 1980, this TV Vader thing. They do a Space Invaders game. That does okay for them, just because, I mean, it's Space Invaders, right? And we already talked about how, in Japan, Space Invaders was a major, major thing in comparison to how it was in the States. Yeah, I mean, this is a couple years late, obviously, but still, I think it probably does okay. We don't have numbers for that one like we do for some of their other games, but I think that one probably does kind of okay. Epoch's been solid. I mean, they haven't been as big as Nintendo. You know, Nintendo did those million units. Epoch didn't do a million units, but Epoch did 200,000 units of its System 10, which was its ball and paddle game competing with Nintendo. You know, I have an estimate of 1.2 million total systems. Well, if Nintendo sold a million and Epoch sold 200,000, there had to be a few more systems than that sold because there were other companies selling systems. When you get into estimates and rounding and all of this, it, it gets weird. But the point is... If Nintendo's selling a million system and has about 70% of the market, and Epoch is selling 200,000 systems, they got to be in second place, Mm -hmm. I would think. I mean, I don't have sales figures for Tomy or Bandai or any of these other companies, but you have to figure Epoch's probably in second place. Their TV baseball game sells 230,000 units, which is better than Nintendo's driving game sells in 1978. Epoch is hanging in there very strongly, and so they're the one other company that is sticking with it. And even Nintendo basically gets out and they're kind of the only company sticking with it. I don't have sales figures for TV Vader, so I don't know how well that did in 1980. They are sticking with this and they're trying to figure out ways to move the market forward. They decide after TV Vader they can't do this dedicated console thing anymore. Even if they could continue to get the biggest hits like TV Vader, you know, like Space Invaders and put them in the home, Japanese homes are tiny. You can't expect someone to buy two, three, four dedicated consoles. There's no space for them. So Epoch decides to move forward from that. And so in 1981, they release a system called the Cassette Vision. Again, remember, cassette equals cartridge in Japan. So this is a cartridge-based system, but it's not a microprocessor-driven system. It's not like the Atari VCS. It's not like the Intellivision. It's a base unit that accepts cartridges. And then there's an LSI on the cartridge that dictates the gameplay for that cartridge. So it's not executed in software. It's executed in hardware. It's a multi-game unit. Sounds like it's a more advanced version of the Magnavox Odyssey. In a way. So the Magnavox Odyssey is a little different because... Really, all of the game functionality is contained within the Odyssey. The circuit cards that you use is essentially, I think we talked about this in our Odyssey episode, it's essentially like setting jumpers. You've got all the circuitry in the system, and then the card you put in connects that circuitry in different ways. So it completes this circuit, this circuit, and this circuit, which causes this TV element, this TV element, and this TV element to appear. And you put another cartridge in, card, not cartridge, it maybe completes two of the same circuits, but then it doesn't complete that other circuit, so it's a little different on the screen. It's jumpers, essentially. With the LSI, the game functionality is on the cartridge, and that LSI is plugging in to the base unit and becoming the master control program, or dare I say it, the central processing unit, even though it's not a microprocessor, of the system in question. The engineering of each of these cartridges is very different, but then the base unit is designed to accept it and hook it up to the controls and hook it up to the video signal generating equipment and whatever else in the base unit. This was something that a couple of companies in the United States and in Hong Kong had done before. Coleco released a system called the Telstar Arcade that used this method. GI, General Instrument, that did the Pong on a Chip, also released a series of LSIs in 1977 that played a wide variety of games. Each one played a different arcade hit. 
And there were certain Hong Kong manufacturers that fashioned cartridge-based game systems out of this, where each of these cartridges had a different one of these GI chips in them and then plugged into a base unit. It never really found favor in the United States because the programmable stuff came along so quickly afterwards. So there really wasn't a place for that. It was kind of in this weird in-between place between a dedicated console and a microprocessor-driven console. And there was no need for that in the U.S. It found more use in Europe, and it found more use in Japan. And I think in both cases, that's because you didn't have as robust a domestic engineering expertise. And so you're importing your consoles if they're microprocessor-driven, and it's just so expensive. I think it was probably as much as anything a cost-conscious thing. It's like, how do we get more gameplay features into a single system without driving the cost way, way up so that nobody wants it, like was the case with Epoch's version of the VCS? So that was Cassette Vision, released in 1981. Cassette Vision is decently successful. Again, we're not talking about a huge market. The Japanese market is pretty small during this time period, but it sells about 300,000 units, which is not bad in the context of the Japanese marketplace. We're down from that high where you were selling a million and a half, two million consoles in Japan a year or whatever, but 300,000 units was very respectable, especially since the base unit is going to be a little more expensive than your dedicated console is going to be but not nearly so expensive as a full thing. In fact, they got away with selling it. I, According to this one website, I haven't verified all these figures, but they got away with selling it for about 13,500 yen. So that's pretty good. And the reason for that is it's not microprocessor driven. It's not like the Atari system. You do have to buy the separate cartridges to make the whole thing work. So I talked before about how Epoch was more in tune with what was going on in the arcade marketplace. And that continued with the cassette vision. They would actually go out, as I said, to the amusement machine shows, the trade shows, and try to guess which games were going to be the big hits, and then they would clone them in the home. So the two kind of big games on the cassette vision were clones of arcade games. One of them was a tree-chopping game <laughs> called Kikori no Yosaku, which was based on an SNK game, Shin Nihon Kikaku at the time, but an SNK game of basically the same name. You know, that's kind of a weird concept, but this is a wildly experimental phase, right? So it was a tree-chopping game, and it was fairly successful in the arcades. It wasn't a mega hit, but it did all right. So they did a clone of that for the uh, cassette vision, and that did pretty well. The other one was Galaxian. Obviously, we've talked about Galaxian. Galaxian was kind of the evolution of the Space Invaders concept, but from Namco. And that one did very well. Now, that one, they ended up having to pay Namco a licensing fee. Namco was not happy that they were kind of stealing that concept. They didn't license it out of the gate. They cloned it. But they ended up having to pay. They also released versions of their previous games, like their TV baseball game, that they had done as discrete dedicated units. They also released those on the uh, Cassette Vision as well. And, you know, did a few other. They did another game that was kind of a combination of Space Panic and Donkey Kong, two early platforming games. Did a couple of other interesting games as well, but it was naturally limited by the fact that it was a dedicated console using LSIs. When you're using LSIs, there's only so much complexity you can get on that chip before it's just become too big, too unwieldy, too impossible to use. At some point, you always have to make that transition to software because software just opens up so much more possibility because it's a relatively small amount of silicon driving a lot of gameplay through code. This is where Nintendo, of course, re-enters the picture. By now, you have a very robust United States console market. You have a lot of very successful games and game companies over there. You have Atari leading the way in the market. You have Intellivision behind it. And then you have this up-and-comer ColecoVision coming out. Bandai licenses the Intellivision. And the Intellivision's expensive, but it's not nearly as expensive as when Epoch was trying to offer the Atari system a few years earlier. You have the home computer revolution starting. 
So you have other toy companies getting back in as well. So Bondi gets back into the business by licensing in television. Tomy gets back into the business by creating a simple computer for the home that, that plays games, but it's also a computer. Commodore is having some success in Japan with its VIC-20 computer, which is called the VIC-1001, I believe, in Japan. That's having a little bit of success. Takara, another toy company, releases kind of a computer console hybrid kind of thing. The MSX standard is going to be taking shape and releasing in 1983 another home computer. There's kind of this idea, the same idea that happened in the U.S., that the home computer is on the verge of arriving. So you have all of these systems coming out that are somewhat more expensive systems because they're not just consoles, they're computers. Nintendo is obviously still very invested in the toy industry and is kind of taking a look at what's going on. They want to be involved in this too. In between, they've done the Game & Watch, which we talked about in the context of Gunpei Yokoi, which has been a massive success in Japan. Not quite as successful elsewhere, but massive in Japan. The handheld games are running out of steam by this point. Again, a couple of years behind the United States. In the U.S., handheld games were already running out of steam in 1979, 1980, and the programmable consoles were taking over. In Japan, that goes on a little longer. Game & Watch is released in 1980 and does very well in 81, 82. You know, it's, it's going on in that time period. But that is clearly starting to diminish in value, even though they will still keep releasing them for several years after that and still sell more units. So the next step is to get into this console market. Nintendo decides to do this in partnership with Coleco. Coleco, in 1982, is the hot new kid on the block with their ColecoVision system. Coleco licenses, as we talked about, certain games, including Donkey Kong, which we talked about in our patent episode, from Nintendo for the ColecoVision, so they have a relationship. Coleco wants to get into the Japanese market. This is a market that is starting to be noticed by the American companies. Obviously, Mattel has licensed the Intellivision to Bandai. Atari, at this point, is getting ready to go in under its own power after their unsuccessful deal with Epoch and and launch the system through their own Japanese subsidiary. So Coleco does want to get into that market, and they have the relationship with Nintendo already. So Burt Reiner, who's their head of product development, and Leonard Greenberg, their uh, chairman and co-CEO, go over to Japan to negotiate with Nintendo on having them release the ColecoVision in Japan. They almost have a deal, but they just can't agree on the percentages. They just can't agree on the percentages. So uh, Yamauchi refuses to yield on what he wants. Coleco refuses to give him what he wants. So finally, Yamauchi, president of Nintendo, tells them, fine, we'll design our own console then. And as Burt Reiner tells it, uh, it's mentioned in the book High Score, but I've also interviewed Burt Reiner and he's told it to me as well. They just kind of laughed at that. I mean, not in Yamauchi's face, obviously, but after they leave the meeting, they just kind of laugh at that. It's like, yeah, Nintendo do a console. Okay, fine. Whatever. Let them go play at being a console company. Well, Yamauchi's serious about this. He is deadly serious about this. At this period of time, Nintendo is divided into two R&D divisions. There's Gunpei Yokoi's division, R&D 1, that has been very successful with the Game & Watch. And there's Masayuki Uemura's division, who we talked about before, the former Sharp salesman that came to work at Nintendo who is running R&D 2, which has been doing some of their arcade output, but this is the period of time where the arcades are beginning to diminish in profitability. So his division has not been doing nearly as well as Yokoi's division. So because Yokoi's division is so busy doing all the Game & Watch stuff, Yamauchi comes to Uemura, and he says to Uemura, we need to make a video game console. And just like with the Color TV 6, Color TV 15, He says that we need to outperform the competition in capability while undercutting them in price. That is Uemura's mandate. That is what he is required to do. At the same time that this is going on, Sega is being confronted with the very real decline of the arcade. Sega is one of the kings of the arcade. And they're being confronted by this very real decline because it's happening in Japan, too. It becomes more acute in Japan in 1984. We're still a couple of years before that. 
But even at this time, it's starting to become apparent that the arcade, there hasn't been another big hit after Pac-Man to kind of continue to push the arcade forward. And it's pretty clear that the government is getting more and more agitated at the way game centers are run. Because game centers in Japan in this period are like they're 24-7 operations. Games are played by salarymen sometimes, but it's really a youth population. So the fact that these are open 24-7 and attracting youth is not a good thing. Arcades have a very bad reputation in Japan as a place where the near-do-wells hang out, very similar to the reputation they had in the United States. The government is starting to become concerned about this, and it's pretty clear that they're probably going to do something about this at some point. So Sega decides that they need to get in on this home thing as well for the future of the company. They hire an executive away from Nintendo, actually, to kind of help them come to grips with this home market. They follow the same convention that some of these other companies like Tomy and Takara and all the companies in the MSX standard are involved in. And they decide that they need to create a home computer that also functions largely as a game system. And so they start working on this product at the same time that Uemura has been charged to create his cheapo version of things. You also have Epoch that's still in the market as well. This kind of sets the stage then for where we want to go next time, which is Nintendo and Sega are both about to enter this home market. In Sega's case, for the very first time, In Nintendo's case, re-entering the market for the first time with a programmable system after being involved with dedicated consoles a few years before. But you can see that this grows out of larger things going on in the Japanese market and grows out of a continuum of video games that had already gone back to the mid-1970s. So with that kind of background in place, this allows us to, next time around, begin our big, epic three at least probably only three this time but who knows you thought it was three last time (laughs) i know i know look at the nintendo and sega rivalry as it developed from the release of their first systems in 1983 through to the mid-1990s when the whole thing changes when sony gets in and cd comes in and it's a completely whole new ball game Well, that sounds good. A good lead up to our epic summertime multi-part deep dive. So we will see you next time with Nintendo vs. Sega Round 1 on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode used under a creative commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by Roller music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative commons attribution license